With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you believe life after me? You're breaking my misery. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Believe by Cincinnati indie rock band 12 Minute Mile. 12 Minute Mile is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you hear the rest of that excellent song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's talk mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. So where are we headed tonight, Paula? Steve, we're going to Miami County. That's just north of Dayton. And it's moving day. For Greg Breidenbaugh, a lieutenant on the Ludlow Falls Fire Department. It's April 24, 1981, and brothers Neil and Martin Hoffman are giving Greg a hand. They've helped him pack his vehicle, and they're traveling from his old digs on State Route 55 to his new place on Greenlee Road, just west of the city of Troy. Greg spots a buckskin coat lying in the ditch. That's a nice coat, he mentions, as they continue to drive past. On the return trip, Breidenbaugh pulls over and tells one of his friends to hop out and get a better look at that coat. That's when Neil Hoffman turned back to his friends and gasped. Oh, my God, there's a woman in that coat. What? Wow. The body was lying in the tall grass of a ditch, curled into a fetal position on the right side as if someone had carried and laid her there. Breidenbaugh didn't have a phone hooked up at his new place yet, but he did have his fire department radio, so they hurried back and he called dispatch. First responders initially thought the woman might have been struck by a car, so the state highway patrol raced to the scene. The Miami County Sheriff's Department was not far behind. Two things were immediately obvious. She had no socks or shoes on and she wore a handmade, tasseled buckskin poncho with a deep purple lining. The garment 
that would give her her name for the next 37 years. She came to be called the Buckskin Girl. Her identity was a mystery. Her cause of death was not. She'd suffered trauma to the head and neck, had a lacerated liver, and was ultimately strangled. There were no signs of sexual assault. The bottoms of her bare feet were clean, so it was pretty clear she'd been killed elsewhere and dumped in the ditch after her death. It would have been a convenient spot for a killer, with I-75 just five miles down the road. Was she a runaway? Was she a prostitute? Had she been murdered by an abusive boyfriend or husband? Police had very little to go on but her appearance. The young woman had naturally reddish-brown hair. It was braided into pigtails on both sides of her head, held by blue rubber bands. Her eyes were light brown, and her face was spotted with freckles. Her personal hygiene was excellent, so whatever her circumstance, she'd been caring for herself. She had all of her teeth, and they were in good condition. Had she grown up in a caring environment? Her ruddy complexion suggested she spent a lot of time outdoors. Is that where the scars came from? She had a vertical one under her chin, a little one on her wrist, one on her arm, one on her ankle. And then the casual state of those missing shoes and socks. Had she been killed by someone she had known at a moment she wasn't expecting it? She was five foot six or maybe a little shorter and weighed about 125 pounds. Beneath the poncho, she wore a patterned brown and orange turtleneck sweater and Wrangler bell-bottom blue jeans. Authorities published a sketch of her and circulated it throughout the area, hoping to learn her identity. With her pigtails and freckles and buckskin jacket, it was a heartbreaking portrait. Leads came in. Police followed a couple hundred of them, but none gave them the name they were seeking. Her dental information was taken. Some of her blood was preserved. She hadn't been dead for long, possibly just hours before she was found, so her fingerprints were viable. They were added to her file. Her clothing was preserved at the police department, but her body was buried, and the case went cold. Years went by, and as each one passed, authorities were more and more certain she wasn't from Ohio. Surely in all that time, someone local would have reported her missing. No, much more likely, she hadn't been in Ohio for very long at all. But the years also brought many changes to technology, and Miami County used each new advancement. In 2001, they generated a nuclear DNA profile. In 2008, she was entered into the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, where her fingerprint, dental, and DNA information were made available for law enforcement all over the country. I'm glad they're not giving up on her. You know, know, they never did. I read several stories about this over the years, and the Miami County Sheriff's Department, it was a mission of theirs. They had never given up on her. That's fantastic. Good for them. Well, when she was entered into this missing persons database, immediately there were 226 missing women and girls to compare her to, but no match was made. In 2009, a mitochondrial DNA profile was developed, and both genetic profiles were entered into the FBI's combined DNA index system, better known as CODIS. Still, no matches. 
In 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a new forensic facial reconstruction of the victim, this time a perspective without her braided hairstyle. Maybe that was holding somebody up. And the same year, the Miami County Sheriff's Department approved forensic paleontology tests on the clothes that they had kept in storage all these years. Pollen studies of buckskin girls' clothing were conducted by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. And an Ohio crime lab did isotope studies on her hair. All of this in an effort to trace the geographic movements in the last year of her life. I guess, I, you know, that's, those are tests you don't hear about very often. Right, I'm assuming they're doing pollen tests to figure out if she came from a different area. Exactly. And they, they learned some things. They found out that she had spent a lot of time in the western part of the country. Wow. The suit particles had placed her in big cities. She had spent at least four months in the Fort Worth, Texas, southwestern Oklahoma area. That's amazing. They can Isn't figure that, that crazy? Out. Yeah, that's they, awesome. These tests not only said she had spent four months there, but at two different times. Oh, wow. Yeah. You just, uh, you know, amazing. Yeah, it's very cool. And then in 2018, so this is just last year, a new DNA technique was done by the DNA Doe Project. We've covered these guys a couple of times yes. on this. And this is where experts, they used her liquid blood that had been stored since 1981. They ran it through a genealogical database These are people who voluntarily upload their DNA to national websites in the hopes for, you know, finding long-lost relatives or identifying their parentage, that sort of thing. And so the DNA Doe Project is trying to match markers with people who have voluntarily submitted this DNA. And the trail led to Buckskin Girl's relatives in Arkansas. Arkansas, okay. Buckskin Girl was no more. Her real name was Marsha Lenore Sosaman King from, wow. from Little Rock. From Little Rock, okay. From Little Rock. She was born on June 9, 1959. Uh, she was 21 years old at the time of her death. That's amazing they, they figured that out. That's... Yeah. Well, the, the tests that had placed her out west and what the police are going to learn going forward, she clearly was just on this traveling adventure across the country. We don't know a lot about her movements or what she was doing, but she had covered a lot of ground. Oh, this was typical of you know young adults in that era. That era. I wouldn't say typical, but oh, I mean you know, I mean, well, it's not the seventies where everybody. She was, was free spirited. Yeah, she was free spirited. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Murray, she was a forensic anthropologist at Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati. She'd been helping with the investigation for years. And last April, she was at a press conference and she said, I can't emphasize how many things had to go right for us to be standing here today. This is some revolutionary, groundbreaking work. And I should mention, this was actually one of the first cases that the DNA Doe Project took on. Oh. Even though we just got the information on it last year, it was one of the first ones they accepted to the project. That's interesting because we've covered them quite a bit. Yes. Well, one reason, turns out, that it took so long to identify her was that her family had never reported her missing. The family hasn't said much publicly, but authorities said during a press conference that the family had never given up hope she'd return one day and that Marsha's mother 
always remained in the same house and kept the same phone number. Just in case. Just in case. Marsha's father, unfortunately, didn't live long enough to know what happened to his daughter. He died just three months before the DNA report was concluded. And two of her brothers had also died in her absence. Marsha King's body remains in her grave at Riverside Cemetery. On July 20, 2018, a memorial service was held at a local chapel, and the headstone that once read Jane Doe was replaced to bear her name. Finally. Finally. The stone, by the way, was paid for through a fundraising campaign by a Fraternal Order of Police Lodge. King's family came up for the ceremony. Her stepmother, Cindy Sosaman, said if it was part of God's plan for their daughter to be killed, she was blessed to have been left where community treated her as a loved one and never gave up. You are all angels in our eyes, the stepmom said. With a name to their victim, Miami County Sheriff's Department, they were able to find out a little bit more about Marsha's journey. They learned she'd been in Louisville, Kentucky, just 14 days before her death, and that she had also, just before her death, had spent time in the Pittsburgh area. So they have a few more clues. The man who spotted Marsha's coat in the ditch, uh, Greg Breidenbaugh, he went on to become the Ludlow Falls Fire Chief. And last year, after Marsha's identity was revealed, he shared his joy in knowing that that part of the mystery had been solved. He said... I'm glad that this has happened. It's been something I've thought of for 37 years. I'd about given up on it. Yeah, he and probably everybody else. Right. So who killed Marsha King? The working theory, of course, is that she was hitchhiking and got into the wrong truck or car. Some investigators speculated that she might have been the victim of a serial killer that has never been caught. There were a string of killings in the 1980s and 90s, up to 10 other women most presumed to be prostitutes or exotic dancers. But there was no indication that Marsha fell into that category, and she wasn't sexually assaulted. Yeah, young women have to be very careful. We just heard about that South Carolina woman who got into a vehicle up in... Did you hear about that? Oh, the Uber. The Uber. She thought it was She thought it was her Uber, right. Oh, my God. But it's great that this town, it sounds like they're still not giving up. They're still going after this. They want to know what happened to her. They are. They're, yeah, for them to already start, you know, finding some evidence of where she'd been, obviously they're still on that case. Right. And if it took them this long to find a name, I think they're, I think they're going to find out who, what they happened. They've had are. three generations of detectives right. working on this. It's, and if it takes three more generations, they're going to find it. It's personal for them. They're going to find what happened to them. Absolutely. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. Well, for tonight's Armchair Detective, we have with us Fred Noop. Hi, Fred. Hello. Fred is located outside of Troy, Ohio. That's in the Dayton area. And Fred started his own podcast. It's called Small Town Secrets. It's Mm -hmm. an awesome name for a a podcast. Why don't you tell our listeners what you're all about? Um, What I do primarily... Well, how it came about was I uh, I used to listen to... I still listen to another podcast... A long time ago, they were talking about something um, from this town, you know, and I didn't know anything about it. And I just thought that was a really great kind of feeling to be like, oh, I'm listening to these guys, you know, half a world away. Right. And they just happened to talk about Cast Town, which is where I live. It was like a village of like 
200 people at it, you know? So I was like, I, that was the whole thing. That was the whole crux for the show. I was like, I want to do a show where we dig up the, we dig up the, maybe not necessarily secrets, but the, the interesting stories, the odd history, you know, the, the UFO sightings and the hauntings and the grisly murders of all these small towns so that hopefully people out there will listen to it and, you know, maybe they know about it, maybe they don't, you know, hear their name on this podcast and see their town in a different view than they did before. Well, every but, every yeah. small town has a small town secret. I know that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So you are not going to run out of material. No, oh. I already have a list of oof, probably 50 or 60 towns that I can do. And if I, I try to touch on two an episode if, and, and have some sort of theme with them. So I've probably got... I probably got a good twenty five, thirty episodes worth of material right now. I will say and, that there yeah. <laughs> that there is no secret that we are outside right now. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I can hear birds. <laughs> there, <laughs> there are birds yeah. tweeting. Believe it or not, we have some guests inside and rather than ask right. them not to speak, we just moved everything out well, to the deck. Yeah. So I'm yep. sure the, the tweeting of the birds will be uh, appropriate <laughs> because our crime takes place outside. Um, I Fred, I had I had asked for your help in picking out a um, Ohio mystery that you might be interested in, and you immediately thought of Buckskin Girl. So why yes. don't you tell us wh- how you knew about that case and why this one intrigues you? Well, I actually I stumbled upon it while trying to find information on another one originally. I don't remember why I was looking it up, just curiosity, or I was thinking about it. But this other one was back in fourth grade, I remember people were finding body parts around Miami County. And uh, I went to look that one up. And that one was, you know, I didn't suggest that one because it was thoroughly solved. There was no great, great mystery to it. But in looking that one up, that's when I stumbled upon the Buxton Girl or Marcia King because I didn't, you know, it was right there in Troy on Greenlee Road, which is where I almost went. I was almost going to try to call you guys from Greenlee Road. Oh, my gosh. For, I, for the event? But I didn't know. It's kind of out. It's not out in the boons, but it's getting to a point where I didn't know how well the cell phone reception would be, so I didn't do it. About how far are you from that spot? If I leave right here, mm-hmm. maybe a 15-minute drive, a 10-minute okay. drive. All right. Yeah, it's not very far, so yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I heard about sure. this case after her identity was solved. Yeah, and I didn't even know that until you guys asked me this, and I went back to refresh my memory, and I when I looked back up again, all of a sudden on Wikipedia there was a name. Yeah. There wasn't a name like a year ago. Yep. Well, I, one of the problems with these kinds of cases is when you have you know someone hitchhiking far away from home, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a day when they didn't have DNA or cell phones. I mean, it's so easy for somebody to just get lost because. You know, there's nobody around who knows this person. And if she's no. coming from many, many states away, you know, the police may not even realize you've got a missing person up there. I mean, I don't know how their databases were back then. Probably nothing <laughs> like they are now. Oh, yeah, no. So what are, I mean, after hearing and in, in doing your own research, what are your theories on this? I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, people that want to pin this on a serial killer of some sort. Yeah, there's a lot of people that want to pin it on, I guess... He doesn't have the he doesn't have the most thrilling of names, but they call him the Ohio prostitute killer. Yeah. But even that, like, it just doesn't nothing like you guys said, nothing really jives with it, at least I don't think, you know. She was very determined to not be a prostitute. Like, you know, nothing's the same, the MO is the same, nothing is there. Um 
I've heard some people mention like the I seventy killer, but you know he wasn't even operating in like the same time period. If you actually look him up, I mean he was like early nineties, and he killed mostly guys. Yeah, unless unless there's like I feel like there might be more than one I seventy killer. I seventy is a long road. You yeah, know? I wouldn't doubt that. They can find a couple of them. Well, so many um, serial killers take to, you know, the expressway because that's their fast getaway. So a lot of their right, victims right. are there. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are multiple serial killers using the same route. So you definitely yeah. could have that. Um, no, what I really come down to, and now I can't find the article, but I did read a small article from the Dayton Daily News after they found her about, you know, since they established a timeline that, they found that she had spent some time up in Shelby County, which is the county north of Miami County. So I think, you know, if anything's ever found out, it's probably, I don't think it's going to be some serial killer. I don't think it's going to be anything any grandiose by that. It's probably just going to boil down to she spent a couple of nights in Shelby County with the wrong person and, you know, wrong place, wrong time type of deal. You know, they said that you she know? wasn't sexually assaulted, and that just right. seems against... Every MO you would expect in this kind of situation. Does it make you, do you have a guess as to what had happened? I mean, why would somebody kill her if it wasn't to sexually assault her? I don't know. I mean, things happen, you know. You just get, could have been a bad night. It could have been some just raging alcoholic, you know. I mean, if you're, we don't even know why she was out here. I guess she was pretty transient for a long time, right? Like. Yeah, it's not like she traveled quite country. a bit, right? So you know, I mean, every night you're staying with someone who you don't know for beans. You don't know them at all, and you know, you don't know what's going to right come out when they get. You know, it might have been. You know, who knows? It could have been. Could have been a bad drug trip. I mean, right? You know, or it might have been somebody who just accidentally killed her in the commission of wanting to do something else. Oh, yeah, else. Just, yeah, and, yeah, who knows? You know, her family seemed really moved by the way the community, um, you know, adopted her, you mm-hmm. know, made sure she got a grave, the way the police had never given up on her over the decades. Yep. Is that something but we even, should expect from that area? I mean, is that that kind yeah, of area? Yeah, I think Does it so. They're them? pretty good, yeah. They're pretty good about that. I noticed that they even went back and uh, when they found out her name, she has like a new stone now that has her name and everything on right. it. Right. Like a brand new stone, you know. Right. Um, up in, what is that, Riverside, Riverside. Simpson. She's actually up in Piqua. She's not Detroit, but they have her up in Piqua. But yeah, because I mean, you don't get, I mean, this place doesn't get a lot of, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's a murder every once in a while. It happens, but, you know, not something like that where it's been unsolved. I mean, you know, uh, so around here, I think, yeah, it's just something that they would have done. You know, it was kind of touching, too, because that stone, it was purchased through a fundraising campaign mm-hmm. by the FOP. And to think of, yeah. uh, you know, the, the men in blue out there raising money for this, you know, for this girl's headstone. That was that was yeah. moving. That was very touching. Yep. Um, so this girl's identity was one of the first, if not the first case that was actually submitted to... Um, the DNA Doe Project, which is just breaking ground all over the place and solving these these murders. And every time I hear about a case like this, I think pretty soon every murder is going to be solved. It's amazing mm-hmm. how little they have to go on and they can still find that connection through familial oh, yeah. DNA. What do you think about that? 
Well, I remember the first time. I'm trying to find it here. Let me see. Um, there was another one of those little, you know, like a podcast. But it was one of those, you know, we're going to do six or eight parts. We're not going to be, you know, I don't want to say, but a very serial like podcast. And they they solved that case the same way. I don't think it was from the Doe Project, but it was that same. You know, we're we're pulling data from like twenty three and Me type of. We're gonna find you through a, a relative. Yeah, like a through your yeah. cousin. Yeah, from these uh, these kind of you know genealogical uh, companies, you know, and I think that was the first time I have ever heard of them using that. Was on that show, and I would like to find Bear Brook is the name of that show. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, that's a good one. It's not very. It's only like five or six episodes. You can blow through it in an afternoon. Uh-huh. It's a pretty. I mean, it goes. It starts over. It goes all the way across the country, and just a bunch of twists and turns. And at the end, that's how they found out who this guy was. Was because his cousin or someone had uploaded her her uh, DNA to not Twenty Three and Me, but a Twenty Three and Me like company right right that shared that information with the authorities and i think yeah i think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future absolutely it's really kind of uh exciting i know there are a lot of privacy concerns and big brother type concerns about that but these are databases where people upload them voluntarily these are not this is not Ancestry.com and 23andMe. If you get your yeah. DNA from them, then you can choose to go to, like, Jedmatch yeah. or a place like that. and I see that. And that's yeah. where the police uh, can, can access it. So it is voluntary, but it's, it's hard to make an argument for not trying. Uh, well, <laughs> the argument would be that they would make a clone out of you. yeah they're not going to be choosing me for the clone so i'm not going to worry about that (laughs) um well fred is there anything else in your notes there that we haven't talked about um no i think yeah like i said i think you guys covered pretty well the only other thing i found that i thought was interesting i hadn't seen anywhere was just that little tidbit about being up in shelby county i don't know where they got that but dayton daily news had the scoop on that little yeah, yeah, I, I, I did not <laughs> even spot that it. one. Yeah. yeah, I found the Kentucky reference. I think there was a Pittsburgh right. reference, and then down uh, south in the in the Texas Oklahoma area. But oh, I had not goodness. heard about Shelby. Yeah. All right, great, <laughs> Fred. Thank you so much for being mm-hmm. on our show. We appreciate it. Good luck with your podcast. We'll be listening. Yep. Yeah, let's plug your podcast yep. one more time. The name of it? Uh, the name is Small Town Secrets. It comes out every other week. Um, usually on usually on Thursdays. I always say Friday, but I always have to get down a day early so far. Okay. And uh, next next week it'll be out next week. Next week where I'm doing some uh, haunted houses. Ooh. On that one, I haven't. I've gotten four episodes in. I haven't done haunted houses you're, yet. You're so. going to get a lot of our listeners then. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope so. We don't we don't do haunted houses, so we need to send yeah. our listeners to you so they can get their haunted house yeah. fix. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Great, Fred. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. 
12-Minute Mile is an indie rock pop-punk band out of Cincinnati. Can you say that three times real fast? No, I was actually impressed indie you rock, got that. Pop-punk. We didn't have to cut that <laughs> at all. We didn't have to cut it and redo. The band features Zach Hoover, Mark Eddington, Josh Roddenbush, Garrett Fenchel, and Jamie Schreiber. Follow them on Facebook or Instagram. And if you're in the Cincinnati area, you can catch them May 19 at Northside Tavern. The band tells us their members have wildly different tastes in music, and that kind of diversity is evident in the songs they write. So hopefully there is something in there that will appeal to just about everyone. 12 Minute Mile is planning to release a new album very soon, but you can hear their old songs on Spotify and YouTube. And if you find a song you like, please consider buying it. Let's support these hardworking Ohio artists who bring music to our lives. Absolutely. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of their song, Believe. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another Ohio Mystery. streets of your crucified mind the people you meet are leading you blind you want to run away the cold winter air is sharp to your lungs the stars empty stare Strong, the silence leaves you in pain. Do you believe in life after me? You're breaking my misery, and I'm not so sure of the stars anymore. Oh, 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 oh,
Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.